When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't know what those white people in this country feel. But I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to another episode of Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts Katina and Garen. Today's topic is redlining. We first go over the historical context of redlining, what it is, why it was so prevalent in the 1960s, and give some helpful thoughts on what the prolonged effects of redlining are. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, Garen, talk to me about what is happening at this point in history and kind of introduce us to what redlining is. Yeah, so redlining is in some senses kind of a technical thing to understand. It's a little bit, um, uh, I don't know, maybe boring to understand because it has to do with like laws and uh, systems. And so I don't want to... get too much into the technical and want to kind of humanize it and try to help you guys, the audience, understand some of like the human elements of what was happening. So I'm actually, uh, I'll give a real kind of brief definition, but then I want to launch into just a couple stories and then we'll kind of explain it through there. Okay. So um, in the most technical sense, redlining, like the term comes from the fact that the HOLC, Homeowners Loan Corporation, had these maps that had... Uh, color coding for different neighborhoods mm-hmm. where they drew red lines around the neighborhoods where all the black people lived. Um, and there was, uh, they assessed those neighborhoods as having the highest credit risk. Um, and so uh, during this whole era that we're going to be talking about, black people um, were segregated. They weren't allowed to move into most neighborhoods. There was like actual segregation. Like today we're still segregated as a society in a lot of ways. Um, like I used to live in St. Louis. It's one of the most segregated cities in America. You can walk across the street and see like the, the color complexion of the people around you just change very suddenly. So that still exists today, but today it's kind of the aftermath of the official government sanctioned segregation that was present in this era, where it was actually illegal for black people to move into white neighborhoods. Um, And so redlining was part of that process. 
Um, but uh, we're going to see that it's actually like the reality, the full reality of what was happening is just uh, way worse and way more complex and interwoven um, than just the the maps that the HOLC had. So we're going to get into some of those dimensions. Okay. Starting off, um, just two stories. Um, 1951, Harvey Clark in a suburb in outside Chicago called Cicero. Um, there was this situation where Harvey Clark, uh, a war veteran from World War II, moved into this uh, Cicero neighborhood. And pause real quick. I want you guys just to try for both of these stories to imagine like what the world must have been like in order to allow these stories to happen. Like it's just crazy that this these two stories actually happened. Um, but it says something about the world at that time and the world that, um, I mean, this was just two generations ago. And so it says something about the world we've inherited. Um, Harvey moved into this neighborhood and a mob gathered around his house. The white people around uh, in the neighborhood uh, thought that Harvey, as a black man moving into their neighborhood, would depreciate their home values and would cause the neighborhood um, to uh, just allow a bunch of black people to move in and cause white flight out of the neighborhood, and they thought it would ruin everything. So this mob gathered, and 4,000 people rioted went into the house and pulled out all of Harvey's possessions and burned them. Um, hundred uh, The police did nothing, um, but then the governor called in the, the National Guard, and the National Guard arrested 118 of the rioters. But then a grand jury didn't indict any of the rioters and instead indicted the family and their realtor, his NAACP attorneys, and the, the white landlady and her lawyer, on charges of inciting a riot and conspiring to decrease property values. It's 1951. Three years later, 1954, Andrew Wade, who is again a World War II vet, um, and, and I mentioned this before, there's just a theme of a lot of the, um, this, the sad realities, a lot of the atrocities throughout history have happened to war vets um, who like gave the just sacrifice to defend America and come home uh, with like dignity and uh, a bit more resources to be able to like move up in society and they became the targets of racial violence. But um, Andrew Wade, uh, with the help of a friend, moved into Shively. Um, uh, it's an all-white suburb. And a crowd gathered and they, the HOA or like the association with the neighborhood acquired the two properties on either side of his house and blared loud music um, at his house so uh, like through the night. Um, they burned a cross next door and then they threw a rock through the window that said, N-word, get out. And then 10 rifle shots were fired into the kitchen door. Um, meanwhile, there's like everyday daily demonstrations, people chanting, uh, waving Confederate flags, um, KKK is participating. Um, there's these demonstrations that go for a month. Then somebody blew up the house with dynamite. Um, the police who were there every day attending the protest uh, outside or like, you know, maintaining order, the police claimed that they saw nothing. Uh, there was one arrest of Mr. Wade. Mr. Wade was arrested for breaching the peace. Uh, the police chief, chief later said that the bomber had confessed, 
but they didn't indict the bomber, and instead a grand jury indicted the friends of the Wades who helped them buy the house and sentenced him for, uh, to 15 years in prison. He actually went to prison, the friend of the Wades, for helping Mr. Wade buy the wow. house. Um, he, he got out of prison early on appeal, but he actually served time for that. Wow. That was like a different, like, I mean, a different level of, I mean, it's hard to imagine that today. That's the reality. Though. And, and just think how many people are implicated by these stories. That this was not a couple lone actors. Like this reveals what society was like then. Like you have whole police departments, crowds of hundreds of people for, uh, for a month or more at these. And you have like the news, like you would think, I mean, if this happened today, that there'd be such national outcry, but there wasn't outcry because this was like the world as it was then. So with those stories in mind, what kind of, what was the, the system that led to that kind of world? Um, back in those days, uh, the government itself at the state, federal, and local levels the government was propping up a system of segregation. And it hadn't always been so completely segregated. The government, um, starting with, um, uh, in like the 19-teens, um, after the Great Depression, the government started um, actually demolishing neighborhoods that were integrated and in building in their place new uh, suburbs, new neighborhoods that were completely segregated. Uh, the FHA and the VA, two huge uh, lending arms of the government, um, basically in that day, in those days, as the suburbs were being built initially, uh, no one had the money to fund the projects to build the suburbs. Like to build these huge projects, there just wasn't the capital for it. So the government would uh, back the loans or, or actually lend to these developers who would uh, develop these huge projects. And the government would only do that if these developments agreed that they were going to be uh, 100% segregated. Mm. In those days, if even one black person, there was, there was one uh, co-op where there was 500 families and, one, and three black families. Among them, it was like uh, war veterans that were coming back and there were three black families out of 500 and the government denied the project. Um, so like having any black people in the neighborhood, um, you couldn't get lending, you couldn't get loans. And the, the FHA and the VA, um, they discriminated against individuals and wouldn't uh, give loans to individual black people. And so did banks and lending institutions. Um, but also even more detrimental to society is that they blocked any um, just new neighborhoods and housing projects mm. that would have any integration. And so... America was not integrated by accident or uh, segregated by accident. We, we're not segregated because people just happened to move near others who had their same race. Um, America was deliberately segregated. And in fact, uh, supply and demand, um, just if any of you listeners have had any level of economics um, in high school maybe, you know that like supply and demand is this idea that if something is scarce, if it's rare, then the value, the price goes up. Mm -hmm. So like example would be toilet paper during the pandemic was selling for a ton of money on eBay because nobody had it, everyone wanted it. 
Um, well, there was a supply and demand thing that happened with housing where all the new housing, as the suburbs were being built, it was only available to white people. And so black people during that era paid a 30% premium for equivalent housing. They had to pay 30% more for equivalent housing that, that was in neighborhoods that only black people could live in. And then those neighborhoods were oftentimes targeted with other discriminatory policies. So those neighborhoods then were taxed disproportionately. There was a study, a commission that, that found some black neighborhoods were taxed nine times higher rate than white neighborhoods next door. I saw a map of, I think, Chicago, where every single white neighborhood was taxed at lower than the median, and yeah. every single black neighborhood was taxed higher than the median. Mm. D- just uh, discriminatory p- tax policies. And that you couldn't have that in a system where everyone's integrated. But because segregation, um, it, it made it possible to have other discriminatory policies. Black neighborhoods were often rezoned as industrial neighborhoods so that um, strip clubs and pawn shops and um, uh, wasteful industry, like uh, industrial industry that like, produces pollution could go into black neighborhoods. And then they, w- they would use zoning to block projects that were going to be integrated. Um, they would use zone... They, there's one project um, where they tried to build an integrated neighborhood and had to relocate it five times because each time they bought land and tried to build this integrated neighborhood, the local municipalities would rezone, um, it would change the zoning laws to either zone it for industrial or change like the minimum uh, plot size, uh, do anything they could to keep the project from going. And then on the fifth time, they finally got an assurance that they wouldn't do that. But then the, the waste facility, the sanitary facility, raised the prices of the sanitary service to like 100 times the normal rate to kill the project. And ultimately they had to give up and build an all-white neighborhood instead. Like that's what the world hmm. was um, up until the Supreme Court made it illegal in the 60s. Um, so why was it that way? Part of why it was that way was because um, there was a system where basically if... A, uh, a black person moved into a white neighborhood. A lot of the white people were just racist, and so they would want to move out. And then, um, but then there was also people who preyed upon that fear, and the government basically and the realtors associations just allowed it to happen. So, a black person would move into a neighborhood, and then there's these people who would basically um, hire black people to push baby carriages through the neighborhood. Uh, hire black people to um, just make cold phone calls to people asking if their houses were for sale. Um, they would hire black people to drive through the neighborhood playing loud music um, from their car. Um, and then they would actually take out listings for homes that weren't for sale so that black people would come to the neighborhood and see like, oh, is your house for sale? And like I said earlier, black people were paying a 30% premium for equivalent housing. So as soon as a neighborhood was segregated, black people wanted to move there because they needed places to move. There was a massive shortage of housing. And so they would uh, use the opportunity to move to that neighborhood. And so it became like a self-fulfilling prophecy where oftentimes those neighborhoods would go from uh, 100% white to 80 or 90% black over the course of five or eight years 
because finally black people had the ability to move into uh, non-crowded neighborhoods. Um, and they would, uh, many black people were middle class and were doing well, and they would take that opportunity. Um, and then these, uh, like the, the people who were kind of running the scheme, um, they would, they would try, try to scare the white people. They would talk about how like crime's going to go up and all this terrible stuff's going to happen. Uh, but then they would buy their houses. The panicking white people would sell their houses at a discount. And those same people would turn around and sell those houses to the black people for a premium because they knew they were willing to pay more. But then the black people who were buying the houses couldn't get loans. They couldn't get loans like we are used to these conventional loans that are amortized over 20 or 30 years. And once you buy a home, the, the way we're used to it, once you buy a home, you own the home but the home is collateral to the, the loan with the bank. But black people couldn't get loans like that back then. So instead what they had to do, white people could, because the FHA and the VA would insure their loans. Black people had to do contract loans. And, and the way that worked was you basically don't own the home until you've fully paid it off. Mm. And with these contract uh, loans, you if you missed a single payment, then you were outside the terms of the contract. And then the contract, uh, that whoever owned the home could cancel the contract and you had to move and you didn't have any appreciation or equity. And, and back then you couldn't just like set up auto pay. There, there was no internet back then. You had to mail a check for, usually it was like 20 year terms, mail a check for 20 years and hope that none of those checks got lost in the mail because if so, you could lose your home. Black people are also like oftentimes the first ones to be cut with layoffs from any jobs. And so like employment was less stable. Um, and they couldn't, uh, like if they lost their job, then they could lose their home. Um, or just if a neighborhood was changing, um, they couldn't move. If they uh, got raises and could afford a better neighborhood, they couldn't move or you would lose your home. So it was just like, Injustice in so many ways at so many levels that um, it's crazy to even think of, and it has so many implications on today because it's the world we've inherited. Yeah, I, I think that's where I'd like to go. Is I think what I hear a lot of times is you know, well, redlining is illegal, and you can't like segregation is illegal, and all these things like hey, that doesn't happen anymore. Now it's just like make you know make your life if you want something go and get it so like can you speak to that like i mean it, i almost think this has to go into a reparations talk at some point and i think this is one of the big things that you know redlining and this the whole housing market i mean what you, everything that you just described was is like seemed like financially drowning of every in every aspect mm-hmm. and so that has to have effects on today and and yeah. implications, but maybe we can start to talk about that. Yeah, so absolutely, it has implications on today. It is illegal now. Um, redlining, uh, banks aren't allowed technically to discriminate in lending anymore, but they still do oftentimes. Um, but uh, let me just give one example. Levittown was a suburb that was built, uh, an all-white suburb that was built um, it, outside of New York. And the homes in Levittown, which were only available to white people, were initially sold for $8,000 a piece. Those homes are now worth, uh, three, about $300,000 each. So these white people had the opportunity to buy these homes. For most white people in America, uh, the majority of wealth 
is their equity in their home. Yeah. The total value of residential properties in America is 33 trillion, which is, uh, you know, that's yeah, that's like 50 warehouses full of hundred dollar bills. Yeah. Um. So tons of equity that white people were able to get in their homes that black people didn't have access to. Um. And so now you have white people in America um, have nine, like, or black people have one uh, to two percent of the wealth in America, even though they're thirteen percent of the population. So you have this massive wealth gap, and most of that is driven by uh, it, because for white people, most of their wealth is their equity in their homes. Most of that is driven by like a direct result of this uh, discrimination, and. Uh, I mean, these are people like many of whom are still alive today. Like, this is not uh, like reparations for slavery. This is reparations for like living people were discriminated against and didn't have. I mean, veterans of World War II came back and couldn't use their GI Bill to go to four year universities because discrimination, um, those universities wouldn't allow black people. And so oftentimes the. It, the VA pushed them into technical schools instead where they couldn't get as high of wage jobs. Uh, the government during World War II um, used unionized labor and those unions didn't allow black people. So black people didn't have access to the same wages. Um, and then the the government would only lend to white people to buy homes and those homes have now ballooned in value to be, to create most of our wealth and black people didn't have access to that. Um Meanwhile, in the urban ghettos that were overcrowded because of discriminatory government policy, they got inadequate schools yeah. and inadequate educations. They were rezoned for industrial so that black people now um, are twice as likely to have uh, lung issues related to air pollution. Um, they're more likely to have lead poisoning because of uh, inadequate utilities. They're, um, they're just... Uh, there was also like parks and uh, green spaces weren't put into industrial neighborhoods. Um, once uh, once land is zoned as industrial, no new parks or green spaces go in, and, and the ones that are there can get re- rebuilt. Um, and so, th- th- this discriminatory government policy, even though like the root uh, or like it didn't get worse after it was made illegal, it, it nobody wound it back. Like nobody undid it. So yeah, then all of a sudden, black people were allowed to move into white neighborhoods. But even today, America is incredibly segregated. Um, you can look at, we'll put this in the show notes, um, University of Virginia did something called the racial dot map. And you can actually, um, if you Google University of Virginia racial dot map or go into our show notes and click on the link, you can see a color-coded map from the last census, so modern times in America, and you can see just the color coding of how our cities are still super segregated. And, and many of you have had the experience of crossing a railroad track and all of a sudden seeing that like the color of all the people changes. That's not by accident. That's because the VA and the FHA had a lending manual that said if there's a natural barrier separating a new project from a black neighborhood, that it was a lower lending risk. So the government is the reason why you have that. Like there was, there's projects where um, uh, somebody would apply for a project and the government would, would deny it because they said it was too close to, um, they didn't say too close to a black neighborhood. They had other ways of coding the language, but that's what it was. And then the builder would build a quarter mile long, foot thick, six foot high concrete wall around the black neighborhood 
reapply and the government would approve it. They, they, the government would, would require natural barriers separating the black people from the white people before they would approve projects. Well, and it's funny because as you're saying that, I'm just thinking about um, my own stories, like growing up um, and just, um, and even in Denton, where we live, um, I've always said that there's like a spiritual bar- barrier um, after what happened with Quaker Quakertown, where um, a thriving black community was basically pushed out um, to an undeveloped area in the city because um, Texas Women's University um, wanted to expand and they didn't want to have to deal with their daughters um, encountering black men. Um, And so with Quakertown, they rolled them out to Southeast Denton um, in the middle of the night, put their houses on logs and rolled them out um, and I just did a concert in Southeast Denton last night, um, and it's, you know, it's the Denton hood, um, and it's behind a mill, um, where the location is so crazy, like, when you look at Bell and McKinney, when you look at the mapping of Denton and the zoning of Denton, like, you have this thriving square, um, and where, you know, apartments are a few thousand dollars, some of them to rent. And then you have all these square, the businesses on the square, all these high-end restaurants, um, just all this thriving commerce, um, white businesses that are like, that they that have property on the square that have been there for decades and that, you know, they charge out the wazoo for burgers and whatever. Um, and then you cross the tracks, literally, and there's Southeast Denton. And you go behind the the mill, the industrial plant, and there's Southeast Denton. And there are some houses that are still on cedar blocks from when they rolled uh, people's houses out on logs um, in the early 1900s during Quakertown. It's... Uh, it's interesting, and then what people don't 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 think about is that um, black areas are, are going to be um, highly criminalized uh, by the government, by um, the community, by the white community, because it's like let's push these black people over in this corner, and then we're going to make life difficult for for them from there. So they're highly criminalized. Um, a lot of pro- police brutality. Um, food deserts are created um, where grocery stores would have been in the neighborhood. And then when there's white flight um, and it's zoned as a black area, people who can't get groceries unless they're driving across town. And I'm seeing that I, I grew up in um, Memphis in a community called Orange Mound. And y'all have heard me talk about it. Um, It's the uh, first African-American community that was actually built to be an African-American community in the country. Um, It's in Memphis. And uh, my home, my childhood home, was two houses from the railroad track. Um, Because by the time, you know, we're living there, it, it, uh, and even, like, from the time we're living there, um, and and to now, there's a there's an increasing decline um, in the in the community, 
And so there's criminalization, there's food deserts, and then there are people that have stores um, that are not representative of the community. So they're not black people that own the grocery stores or the corner stores or the gas stations. They're people from other ethnicities, other races, other cultures. Um, there's a, I remember uh, growing up, there's a, a man named Gary. He's a white man that has stores, and my brother worked at Gary's. But, you know, to not see black business in your own community that's made up of primarily black people. And um, Gary's store, and, and, you know, Gary was like, everybody knew Gary's, and um, everybody loved Gary. But then Gary's wife (laughs) was on the news for saying, you know, racial, the craziest stuff, and um, black people still don't have a choice but to go to that store, even after... Um, this man's wife comes out to be a racist. And so we have to work around people's racism because for some people, because everybody doesn't have a car, everybody can't afford to put gas in the car to drive across town to get groceries. So they're having to buy groceries from this place where, you know, the prices are jacked up. Um, and, you know, it, it there, there, there's so much that goes on with redlining that we don't even think about because we just think, oh, we pushed them out. They got pushed out. But look, you know, they got to live in a house. They got to, you know, because a lot of people will have these weird rationales about, well, you know, it's okay. That doesn't happen anymore. And look at them. They're doing well. And it's like, no, we're not doing well. We're not doing well when we have a higher interest rate. Mm-hmm. We're not, you know, when it's taking us longer to, pay the mortgage on our homes and we are the first ones laid off and we're criminalized and families are separated and one disaster or catastrophe could ruin a family because they don't have the general rate, generational wealth and they don't have um, just, you know, a savings to where they can take care of things because they're having to navigate life while um, in struggle constantly, in constant fear of what's going to happen to them. And they got babies to feed. And, you know, it, it, people don't think. They, they, they gloss over so much when it comes to black existence. Um, and, don't, and, and, and it's crazy because in ways that white people think of themselves and in ways that white people automatically care for themselves, where they can, you know, buy stock and trade and invest and buy homes and buy multiple homes and buy a second house and rent it for a really expensive rate. Or their parents have a home that's paid for within a few years that they, you know, when they get, when, a, when their kids get married, maybe someone can live in that house and then they're saving money. They don't think about the financial impact of uh, white privilege and, you know, the financial impact of black suffering and how it continues and it's felt, you know, you, you, they look at these markers of slavery was over in this, you know, in 1865 or whatever, and redlining was over. Redlining has, is not over, and it's never been over. Mm-hmm. And it's continued. They found new ways to repackage oppression, <laughs> and they, it's continued, they continue to perpetuate it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just crazy. Um, and then when you look at black... 
people. So finally, you know, like like black people get a house, right? They can get a house or they finally can afford to get a house. And, you know, maybe they're able to finally pay the mortgage. Sometimes they have to refinance loans at a high interest rate just to keep the house maintained. So then gentrification happens and people who you know, have lived in a community all their lives and they've, they've uh, retired and they're on uh, a fixed income, they can't afford, the, afford to pay the taxes. And then they're pushed out and white people buy their homes and, and gentrification happens. The property values that were once down here go through the roof and then black people can't move. They can't move because they're still paying these loans that have these high interest rates, then they're having to pay these taxes when you should be looking forward to, I got all my taxes paid, you know, I, I, got, I got my mortgage paid, it's paid off. Then you got to look at these skyrocketing um, uh, tax rates on, in a community where you were used to paying one thing and now you're paying something else. Um, and then, of course, you know, when gentrification happens, here comes the Starbucks, here comes the grocery stores. Um, and so, and here comes all the white people um, that see it as an advantage. I knew a lady who I worked with years ago when Oak Cliff was being uh, gentrified. She, I, she was like bragging to me, a black woman, about, you know, yeah, you know, we, we, we're getting a house in Oak Cliff. I was able to get this great deal and we're going to, you know, we're going to uh, uh, basically kind of make this a better area. And I'm like... What about the people who've been living there the whole time who were forced to be there in the first place? Like, are you freaking crazy? Um, but when it comes to black existence, people are allowed. People have full permission to just neglect um, our humanity. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and I, something I've brought up, and you guys can push it, push against this, but I think as a person living in America, you have got to, and maybe this is an oversimplification, but I feel like I'm going to keep saying this, and this will relate to almost everything that we'll ever discuss here on the podcast. But like when you look at the disparities in the black and brown community versus the white community, I feel like it, and again, help me if I'm oversimplifying this, but it comes down to two choices. You have two choices. You either believe that black and brown people are inherently lazy and right. not smart, like you actually could think that, or you have to believe that there are systems that are in place. You know, we're talking about redlining today, and um, like you have to believe that there are systems in place that are causing those disparities. And so if you don't believe that 
this is why it always comes down to me. If I'm having a conversation with with a lot of white people and we can't agree that there is systemic racism, like that almost seems like the the foundation of our conversation. Like like you have to believe that there is a system that uh, that is that is going against and oppressing people. Because if you don't think that, I, uh, to me, it seems like your only other option is you actually think that they're lazy and inherently stupid. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, and I'll speak to that because I grew up in the hood. Um, and w- growing up in the hood, teachers from our schools lived in our hood. You know, I mean, there were many two-parent homes. There were many husbands and wives with kids we had a beautiful community. It was a poor community. It was a community where we were all pushed in one place, but we had a thriving community. Kids played outdoors. I played kickball, hopscotch, um, you know, hula hoop. We, you know, we looked after each other's uh, homes. We looked after each other. There were there were amazing, like you know, there were doctors in our community. There were people who. Um, there were black people that you know, like one one of my sorority sisters who. She was 90-something years old when I uh, pledged my sorority, Zeta Phi Beta. But she had been all over the world. Um, She helped our organization be the first to do many things. Like, we were the first to charter a chapter in Africa. Like, she had a radio show. She was like a pillar. And she she, she had wealth. But she was committed to the black community and stayed there. And she stayed in this little... You, it was crazy. She's in this little bratty house. Um, and there are people that do that. They're like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay here. And she lived through generations of seeing the crazy things that happen in our community. And, and, and there are, there are, ama- there are police officers in our community that live in our community. I mean, there's so many great, there are people that drive trucks. My mom's a retired nurse and my dad's a retired truck driver. Like where, where people think hood or ghetto, and think that, you know, it's awful people. These We're people that are surviving. We're people who are living. And we're people who, haven't, who are having to make decisions every day um, that impact um, whether our children are going to eat. Like, we're people that are sacrificing. There's so much fortitude in the hood. There's so much beauty um, out of all the ashes that get dumped over there. Um, and it's just crazy to me that people don't, like, again, we, they don't think of people as people, as human beings. And white people get to covet their privilege and covet their comfort and covet their um, luxury and then have the nerve to think that black people are lazy when there are systems that are created to continue to oppress us, that we have to continue to fight to a climb out of. No, we're not lazy. We're traumatized. Um, we have trauma, we have uh, mental health issues, we have medical health care disparities because of where we've had to be um, placed in in the cities. You know, we're placed in the dumps. Um, You know, we have PTSD. But if we were so lazy, you know, why did they come over to Africa and get us? They didn't have to, they, I mean, we, we worked pretty hard to build this entire country on our backs with our blood, sweat, and tears. The, the whole idea of black laziness is a campaign that um, basically, it started during slavery, slavery um, because people needed, you know, to. It, it's just like a conscious soothing thing. 
I need to be able to beat these people. I need to be able to subdue these people. I need to be able to see these people as less than me. So there's this narrative of laziness. But then when slavery was over, the lazy narrative got, you know, it increased. Like it, 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 it skyrocketed because there's this threat of a people group that we've gotten to beat and rape and, 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 and do all these horrible things to. They're actually potentially going to be our evil, our, our equal, and they may do to us what we do to them, what we've done to them. So we got to call them lazy, uh, fetchless. Like there's movies about... You know, I think about the Shirley Temple movies and Bojangles and just, you know, the way... And, and like a lot of black actors uh, in the early 1900s, they were educated. They were... They were they attended the black universities that we created. Um, they were members of, you know, our fraternal and uh, sorority organizations. They were... They had other careers um, before they became actors. And they... <laughs> they played these roles in this in these movies like these Shirley Temple movies where they were happy darkies and they um took on these roles that were just so beneath some of them had acting you know um um they were thespians they were true actors and true actresses but they had to play mammies mm -hmm. and, and 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 they had to sit in you know they had to uh, be separated. They had to make way less pay. So there's this whole campaign. And can you imagine like black people having to play in these movies just so they can eat? Mm. I mean, they put black people in this compromising situation where we have to make choices to eat or die. Um, and we have to participate in our own oppression and trauma um, with this lazy narrative um, just because America... Um, America is lazy. America is trifling. America is fetchless. America um, has committed all this injustice against us, and the fact that yeah. we fought so hard to get where to get where to where we are is just nothing short of a miracle, and that is not laziness. Yeah, yeah. During slavery, it was like a form of protest, like where slaves, yeah. like couldn't stop working, but like. As a form of protest, like, well, we're not going to do our best because, like, we see, like, like it's evil. What's happening to us? So it's a form of protest. Um, and then as soon as slavery ended, black people applied for patents at the same rate as white people. And that was the high point of patents for black people because then pretty soon uh, the, the government in, uh, didn't protect black patents. Yep. And so it's like, oh, well, then we're just creating a patent where we're sharing our ideas and inventions and the government's not going to protect our ability to get money from it. So we're just giving people our ideas. Right. And so, uh, and then black people went and they built from nothing neighborhoods like what, like what we talked about in the Tulsa episode built, like worked hard and had like the incentive to work the just like a normal incentive, like white people would have and they built it. And then those cities were destroyed and then uh, this is where like this connects even back to um, like connects the Tulsa episode to this episode is what we didn't talk about then is that Greenwood, the Tulsa neighborhood, rebuilt. And then in the 70s, um, after like a lot of this redlining stuff went down, um, they acquired, uh, the government uh, condemned and acquired a third of the Greenwood neighborhood to build the University of Tulsa. And then they divided the Greenwood neighborhood in two with a highway. 
Um, we'll talk about this in a future episode, but oftentimes highways were deliberately directed toward and through black neighborhoods yeah. as a form of, uh, quote, ghetto clearance. Yeah. Um, and eminent domain was like weaponized. A lot of, yeah. I grew up knowing about eminent domain, yeah. but as a white person, it's like seems far away because it's like, well, I'm, we're not under threat of uh, eminent, dom- eminent domain, but it was weaponized against, like almost entirely used against black communities to, to acquire black communities to get do ghetto clearance to build other public work projects. And so the Greenwood community was was crippled in the 60s and 70s by these, these government policies. And then like all the, uh, even in ghettos today, all the properties, uh, like the, the rate of home ownership for black people is low. Like most of yes. them rent because of these discriminatory policies throughout history, like contract lending and a lot of this other stuff. And just like the lack of ability to acquire wealth, a lot of black people have to rent and then when they're renting, they oftentimes pay like premiums on like some of the um, stories that I've heard here just in the Dallas area of just like the price gouging that goes on. Yeah. Um, because black people, if they don't have a car, don't have um, the ability to like easily move and commute. Yeah. And they're forced to live in neighborhoods to stay at their jobs, to not lose their jobs. And the landlords can just drive the prices up and up and up. Um, it It's like a systemic evil that just flows through to today. And then part of redlining was also just different corrupt industries would just target black communities. So for instance, yeah. if you have a contract loan, you know you could lose your house if you miss a payment and uh, you're behind on money. Predatory you lending. Gonna you're going to borrow money. But you have to borrow from, uh, the modern day thing is, is a payday lending. Yep, where, predatory. Where black people oftentimes pay um, like 50% interest rates, t- interest rates today. Like this yeah. still happens all over the place. If you go into a black community, all of a sudden you're going to see a bunch of payday loan places. Yep. And you don't see those in white neighborhoods because it's a, a, an industry that's built to prey upon black people. Those industries are owned by white people who put them there to get money out of black communities um, because they know that black people don't have the wealth to just like meet basic needs. And so it just creates like this cycle of poverty. Well, and and this whole, the predatory systems that are built um, there's all there are all kinds of predatory lending systems, even car loans, um, and just the way some of the uh, car dealerships will, will advertise, like on a white Christ, a, a white radio station versus a black radio station. If you listen to a black radio station long enough, there's this appeal. Um, and, you know, we're going to fix all of your problems. We're going to, you know, you can come get a car today and all you have to do is X, Y, Z. And it, it just becomes the, like they prey on um, just our desperation. And I was newly married, um, me and my husband, you know, living here by ourselves. And we fell prey to like we were victims of that because when you need to turn, keep the lights on because you have a child with asthma and you need to keep the electricity on, you'll do just about anything that you can, you know. And if it's legal, if it means that you're going to pay extra interest and all of that, and you don't have any generational wealth because your parents are struggling just like you are, then you're going to do what you have to do. Black people stay. We stay doing what we have to do just to make it. Just to make it. And there's so many predatory systems um, 
that are set up in 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 house lending, in the auto industry, um, you know, just the predatory loans um, that exist mm-hmm. um, to just prey on even f- like furniture to get decent furniture. Um, the way that um, people can go and purchase a bed in any other community is so different. Um, there, when I think about Denton and some like Bell's Bondsman, when when I think about what exists in black communities to prey on poverty and to prey on marginalization and to prey on oppression and disenfranchisement. Like, it's crazy. And and it's so, it pisses me off, y'all. I'm mm-hmm. just going to keep it wondering. Like, it pisses me off that we have to even have a podcast to tell white people something that all you got to look around and all you got to do is open your eyes and see. Like, people are so ignorant. Like, it, like it's so crazy. Like, in my blackness, I have to be aware of whiteness in a way that whiteness is never, never, whiteness never has to consider me, never has to think about me. And I am sitting here having to lay out my trauma and bear my heart um, for people to maybe consider that I might be right. They don't even have to believe me. Oh, she's so passionate. She's so angry. You know, they don't even have to think about my existence. They don't even have to, you know, it's so crazy how white people in the Christian community can be, they thrive on being biblical scholars. And let's not even talk about how seminaries were built to the exclusion of black people and to establish um, and and uplift and sustain white superiority. Um, You know, this study, the way the white community and the way white people in America study the Bible um, to basically uh, render black pastors and preachers and black Christians inferior. Let's not even go there. But it's crazy that, you know, all this study of the scripture and you can't just look around and see the differences as you're driving to work. This is a black community. Oh, what's going on over here? Oh, there's a plant. Oh, they're, they're across the track. Like picking up a book and reading that we have to, you know, spoon feed this stuff to folk. You know, I'm sorry that we have to spoon feed this stuff to folk um, so they can open their eyes in the comfort of their own privilege, like in, in their houses, in their nice spaces. While black people are still dealing with um, trauma and PTSD, and we still, like, <sighs> Mr. Blake killed seven bullets, shot in the back. Like, I, you know, Elijah McClain, like, there's... <laughs> yeah. It just... It's overwhelming. Yeah. It, it is. I'm, I'm just keeping it 100. It, it's just, it's exhausting that we have to, the way that black people have to fight for our existence to still be seen as a nuisance. The way we have to call out what is actual and factual, that redlining ex- exists, and we're not far, for move, far, far removed from when it started after slavery to now and the impact, the collateral damage, the residual impact, how the generations are affected, how general, potential generational wealth. You talk about patents. Black people created so many inventions out of the mother of necessity. They were slaves and they had to figure out ways to make life a little bit more bearable. So they made all these amazing inventions that Americans, white Americans, get to fill their houses with today. Um, 
And a lot of them, a lot of these inventors died in poverty. Mm. They didn't get credit for their work. White people stole their inventions. Can you imagine for every black inventor, if they were able to sustain the wealth that would be passed on to their um, to the generations, what it would look like for bl- for the black community? Can you imagine what if Greenwood, Orange Mound, and you know Rosewood, Florida, all you know, uh, if all these yeah, communities would have been yeah. able to sustain and have something to themselves, what we would have today. And to say that when we say that these things happen and then white people minimize it and say, well, I mean, look at you today. You da 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 But you, you know. They're like, but black athletes. Right, black athletes. And then there are black athletes that still, when you, you know, when you compare a black athlete to a white athlete and black athletes are still getting paid less Mm. for what you know it's like or black police officers are getting paid less or black teachers or black doctors or black managers it like it's it's not apples to apples y'all it's not you don't get to tell us what we need to accept the handout that's given to us because one it ain't a handout we worked hard to get where we got and we've worked a lot harder than most of white america to get the little scraps that we get even during the 2009 financial collapse the predatory loans that caused people to lose their homes. Uh, th- there was these loans that were called by the lending agencies. They, this is like 2009. They were called ghetto loans. Right. It was like in that circle of like the lenders, that's what they referred to them as. And they targeted black people with these ghetto loans that basically you'd have a lower payment up front, but then it would balloon to a higher payment later on so that you would either have to refinance or would like lose your home. And they sold these loans to black people at three to four times the rate of white people. Yeah. And this is like 10 years ago. And then they would send people in black, they would pay black people to go into black churches to advertise these loans. Yeah. But they didn't do that for any white spaces or white communities. Just like targeting the black community. Um, yeah. And there's so much in what you just said, they're, they're like, uh, like we're going to have to do whole episodes on some of that, but just like the lack of empathy from white people to see like Jacob Blake shot in the back and to not recognize like the whole system of injustice and trauma and like, yeah, black people, when they see white police officers, they, it's not the same because they have a trauma response because of a centuries of injustice and like fear and uh, like this trauma in their bones of like not feeling safe and then the white people just like the lack of empathy um to just like throw stones and not have like yeah compassion what's crazy is that white people fight so hard to uplift um and sustain privilege like they fight so hard. Like, you know, just even when we look at politics and how people are elected um, and the way that propaganda and campaigning works um, for sub- suburban white moms and, you know, just we're, we're trying to protect your rights and your privileges and your faith. You know, we want to protect your right to be able to say Merry Christmas and they're going to take your, your guns and they're going to, you know, and it's like, from a place of privilege. And then I, it's so funny because I hear white people say, my, my parents, they came to this country and they worked and they, um, you know, my grandparents, they worked hard to get what they got. 
But let me tell you something. Your grandparents, if their skin was white, even if they were Italian, even if they were Polish, whatever they were, if they were Eurocentric, they did not have to navigate life um, as a black or brown-skinned person, and they weren't discriminated. They might have been experienced some uh, discrimination because, you know, they were Italians or... But they still were able to be... They could be white. Many changed their names. Many changed their names and were able to assimilate, but they still had the benefit of white skin. There's, you cannot say that white people... Um, were oppressed or ex- in, in America or experienced things that black... You can't compare the black experience to some of the hardships that immigrants coming over to this country might have experienced. Because, yes, they were able to work hard and start their own businesses. But with black people, we were kept from having our own businesses. Our businesses were set on fire. We were lynched. Italians weren't being lynched for being black. And I bet every white immigrant that came over to this country, they would not trade pers- places with a black person because oftentimes they participated in the discrimination against black people. Mm-hmm. And they participated in the othering of black people. So to suggest that, oh, my grandparents, they came over here and they, your grandparents came over here and we, black people were already over here and we were experiencing um, oppression in ways that your grandparents could not imagine. You know, it's so crazy how white people want to dismiss the experiences of black people. And I think it's guilt. I really do think it's guilt. I think it's shame. Um, and I justification. Think, yeah, to, to, and, and just, it, we, we got to work around it. Yeah. Let me, let me give a metaphor, white people, um, for systemic racism. Um, many of y'all have played Mario Kart because <laughs> oh, yeah. we all love Mar- Mario Kart. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mario Kart actually has not systemic racism, but <laughs> a, a good <laughs> metaphor for it. In Mario Kart, many of you may or may not realize that the further behind you are in Mario Kart, you the, the, the game actually gives you a little bit of a speed boost if you're in the back and a little bit less speed if you're in the front. And they give you better items in Mario Kart if you're in the back. Because the game makers knew that it would be more fun if it's kind of like everyone's running into everyone and shooting everyone with items. And they don't, so they, they kind of pull everyone towards the middle pack. So if you're in the back, you get the stars, you get the lightnings, you get like, uh, and if you're in the front, all you get is the green turtle shell and the banana. Mm. Um, and some of you guys, uh, and this this is a good metaphor for systemic racism. Some of y'all are finding this out for the first time and you've played Mario Kart for years and you didn't know this until I'm telling you just now. Mm. Because wherever, if you're good at Mario Kart, if it, I mean, some of you are like, no, I get stars all the time. That means you're not very good at Mario Kart. And if you if all you ever get, ah, I have bad luck, all I get is turtle shells and bananas. That means you're good at Mario Kart. But some of you didn't even see the pattern until I just explained it because you're just used to where you are. Mm-hmm. And you only see your position. Mm-hmm. And so you're not aware of it. But in, in real life, it's not like Mario Kart where the back gets the boost. In real life, it's the opposite where the front gets the boost. The people who are ahead, you know, they say it takes money to get money. Or you can Google the high cost of poverty and see how once you're in poverty, you oftentimes have to like, you, it, poverty 
causes more poverty. You don't have money to get a good education because you're in poverty or you can't pay your fines so you get more fines or you have to rent your appliances because you can't afford to buy them so you end up paying twice as much on them. Right. Um, and, and just assets produce more Assets produce return. So so people who are in poverty get pushed further back. People who are ahead get pushed further ahead. Even if after these racial disparities uh, in uh, housing, it redlining, even after that ended in ni- like 1960s, even if it became completely fair road, uh, road rules after that, then it still would not be fair because of just this dimension of like how wealth gets you ahead and poverty pushes you behind. Like once you create, once the federal government through deliberate action creates this unfair system, then it's not even enough just to say like, okay, we're going to take away the, these unfair barriers and now just let all the natural barriers like make it even worse. But like, um, but, but the government didn't, the government continued to discriminate. Um, Lee Atwater an advisor to uh, Richard Nixon has a fairly famous quote um, that some of you may have heard before. Um, he, I'll just read it. Um, he he t- says that by 1968, uh, like the first you started out, you said N word, N word, N word, talking about how politicians would just uh, be overtly racist. Mm-hmm. And he said, but by 1968, you can't say N word. That hurts you. Like he's actually saying the word, but I'm not going to say it. Uh, he said, that hurts you, backfires. Um, so you say stuff like uh, forced busing, yeah. states' rights, and all that stuff. And so you're getting more abstract. Now you're talking about cutting taxes, and all these things that you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is black people get hurt worse than whites. Yep. White people own homes. And so white politicians created a mortgage tax deduction, where, or a mortgage interest deduction, where now it's tax deductible the interest you pay on your homes. That's actually not an economically efficient policy. Um, ask any actual econo- economist, and they'll say like that's a, like not a good uh, form of tax subsidy. Um, it causes like problems in the markets, um, and yet it's there because it favored white people over black communities that didn't own their homes. Like there's so many government policies that have happened over the years that are not overtly racist now in how they're stated. But the effect is that they help white people and hurt black people. They give all the stars and the lightning uh, to the the white people, and the black people get the the turtle shells. Well, and it's uh, I know you. Uh, we talked about the story about um, a mixed race family got their home appraised for three hundred and thirty thousand dollars, way below the local average, and for a second appraisal, um, they removed all black family photos culture items and had only the white dad at home. So the wife the wife uh is black and the and the husband is white. So when they did that, they took the, you know, anything that showed black people in the house or anything that, you know, uplifted ethnic any culture or ethnicity other than white. Um and the appraisal came back at $465,000. Black owned homes. This just says, happened. Yeah, this just happened. I mean, I saw this post three days ago, and the New York Times posted it on August 25th of 2020. Black owned homes are devalued 23% on average. I'm actually getting ready to sell my home, and we live in a white neighborhood. Um, and when we move, when what we're wanting to do is we want to purchase a home first so that we can completely empty our house, um, 
and then sell it. And only our real estate agent, who is white, and she's she's a friend of mine for many, many years, so that she can show the house, so that there's nothing in the house that would make people want to even think that they could suggest something, you know. And our house is worth double its value now uh, because of the area that we live in. And we put a lot of work into that house. But yeah, I'm thinking as a black woman, they can't see pictures of black people hanging up. They can't see that black people live here because they're going to think that they can, you know, which our house is going to say, like somebody's going to have sense enough to buy it at the rate that we sell it for. But just even me having to think about that um, is crazy. And white people, <laughs> there's no corollary. Like white people wouldn't even consider thinking like I have to hide my race for yep. something. That, that's like... In 2020, I got to hide my race when I sell my home so we can cut through the riffraff of people that think that they might be able to get away with, well, they they may need the money. They, You know, people make these weird judgment calls and weird, you know, they'll, they'll need the money so we can, we, can, we can nickel and dime them. You know, I got uh, recently, um, I do consult work, consulting work, and I'm really good at what I do. Um, and so I was consulting this company and I have an excellent rate. My rate is so competitive and it's actually below what the average is. But I see it on people's faces when they walk through the door or when they find out that I'm African-American, where they would pay thousand dollars, thousands of dollars more for my services to their to white counter, you know, white counterparts. He, they literally wanted to pay me significantly less than what, you know, than, and my rates were already competitive. And so when I had to tell them that, you know, no, no, I, I, I won't be able to work with you, they're insulted, but they insulted me and they're beyond wealthy <laughs> with, with multiple locations. And we're in the middle of COVID and I'm a local businesswoman. And I know that, you know, if Jeffrey, who is white, would have come to you and said, hey, you know, this is my rate, there would be no question that it would be paid. And then they're insulted that I'm actually not going to do business with them. But, you know, I have to value my services and value my talents. Um, and I have to lose a customer that I wouldn't lose if it weren't for me being black. And they have black people that work for them. But you cannot tell me that... You know, people don't assign value to skin color or think, oh, well, if I pay her this much, then, you know, she'll be happy because, you know, she should be good with what she, Like, people don't think that they're, like, that kind of stuff plays out in people's minds all the time. You see skin color and you immediately size people up and think that you can demean them. Even though, like, if you wanted to admit that to yourself, you wouldn't admit that to yourself because it would make you feel horrible. But you don't check yourself. You don't check your privilege. You don't check uh, the ways that you discriminate and your implicit bias. You know, you just think y y people can justify all kinds of crazy stuff. It's, it's a trip. And I mean, I, I'll say I do that. Like I have started just like as an exercise anytime I hear news stories or like if I ever was a juror, uh, I haven't actually been not selected to be on a jury, but like to just like, as a kind of like test of yourself, switch the like swap the races of the people in any story and see if yeah. you feel differently about it. Like if there is 
a, a white guy who you know was loitering and had some drugs on him, do you just automatically assume, oh, he's like a high schooler? Do you just automatically assume, oh, he's just probably a skater? They do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a black guy does the exact same thing, and you think like, oh, he's a thug. Like, like if you swap the races and your perception is different, and, and like I have, uh, I mean, now through like years of doing this, like started to identify areas where I do this, but like even black people, black police officers aren't just immune from seeing racial differences because no. it's like so a part of um, our culture. And it's like told to us all the time, like black people hear the lies about themselves that the culture is saying and yeah. struggle with like insecurity over like seeing themselves the way that culture sees them. So like no one's immune from this. And the way that the way out of it is like a deliberate effort to love and to to kind of like do that like test where you're like s- try to switch the races and try to like train yourself to to give people like equal uh like perception in your own mind that's like part of what it is to love people and i think it's also it's helpful to know the history of how we got here and how black people were like put in this position through like deliberate racist action not not through um any breakdown of black culture. That's not how we got here. Well, and um, talking about redlining, circling back to redlining, um, when we first moved into our neighborhood, we actually lived in our neighborhood for six years on one street. We moved to another part of town for six years, and then we came back and moved to the street over in our old neighborhood for six years. Um, This is in Denton. And um, we uh, purchased our home, um, and it's like on this prominent corner um, in the neighborhood. Um, and we were maybe one of literally, I, I'm thinking like two um, like black households um, in that neighborhood. I can't really think at that time uh, of a any black people. I mean, I knew the black people that lived in our neighborhood and it may, be, it may have been two or three households. Well, um, you know, fast forward, what is this, seven years later since we bought our house, and now there are more and more black families that have moved into our neighborhood. And so all of a sudden, all of a sudden, um, white people are selling their homes in our neighborhood like crazy. Now, in our neighborhood is a coveted area because a lot of, it's like, it's like, in Denton, it's like a real residential area that it, that's coveted because it's established. But a lot of like professors live over there. It's it's just this. It's it's within um, two parks. It's just a coveted area, and you know the area is developing with businesses and all of that. But more and more black people are moving over there. We're seeing like we have a black next door neighbor, and we have a black neighbor that lives right behind us, and we're seeing black kids, you know, walking around, and. It was funny because, like, you would never see a house for sale in our neighborhood forever. Like, if one house was being was going up for sale in our neighborhood, it was a big deal because a lot of the people that live there are older and they kept their homes for years. Like, it's not a lot of new residents in our neighborhood. But all of a sudden, all these houses are going up for sale. 
and my husband was like, you know, you 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 know that people are moving because more black people are moving in the neighborhood. Because my husband, he keeps up with everything in the neighborhood. So he's like, babe, a um, black couple is moving next door. And he goes to meet everybody. A black couple lives behind us. A black couple, like he's telling me everybody black, they're living in the neighborhood. And I mean, all of a sudden, signs are going up everywhere for, for sale signs. And I was like, no, honey, maybe they're just taking advantage of, you know, um, it's COVID-19 and people are want to down, downsize and they want to, you know, the, the, house, the houses are worth more. And I had to think about it. I was like, no, you're right. Because I saw my son, he was, my son jogs, my son runs. He actually had a track uh, meet today um, and did extremely well. He's amazing. Well, he, the, people walk in our neighborhood a lot because we live between two parks. Um, so we have a lot of walkers, people walking their dogs and stuff. And so I was, I came outside because my son, he gets up at like seven in the morning, sometimes six in the morning, and he may run like five to nine miles. And I'm always concerned. My husband has to go and kind of follow him on his bike just to make sure, because I'm, you know, after Ahmad Arbery, um, I'm just concerned about my son uh, running in our neighborhood because my husband has been followed in our neighborhood. It's been nuts. Um, and he was coming down the street. My son was jogging with his shirt off. He's running nine miles. And as he was jogging down the street, there's this woman and she was freaking out because she saw my son with his shirt off running down the street. Now, if you, she would have saw a white jogger, it would not have been a problem. And I could see the panic on her face. And I was like, hey, son. Did you have a good run? Very intentionally. And he was like, yeah. He was all out of breath. And then I saw this woman take a, the biggest sigh of relief as she sees me coming out of my house like, oh, okay. And I was like, honey, you're right. People are moving out of this neighborhood because there's more black people coming here. I see it. It's obvious. I don't know why it takes white people so much. <laughs> to see it, but I, we live it and we see it and we feel it. We're very, we have to be, why, why can't we let go of race? Because you won't let us. We are constantly reminded that we are black and you are white and that we have to accommodate your whiteness and that we have to sometimes make ourselves small so that you don't get your feelings hurt or you don't get offended and then we are afflicted or inflicted or oppressed. Uh, we don't have, I wish we had, I mean, there's so much more we could say on, on this topic. I, I just want to like uh, let you guys know about a really good resource if you want to know more. Um, the, the book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Um, he's like a NAACP lawyer and wrote like a, a great book. It's a great audio book also um, if you have Audible. So I would just really commend it as a resource to like, dig into some of this more. Thanks for listening to this episode of Black History for White People. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics and listen to full interviews, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. Remember that all of the money you give in the first 10 episodes will go to the Denton African American Scholarship Foundation. We are going to be doing an interview later with the founder, so be on the lookout 
out for that. On our next episode, we will be discussing policing and protests. We'll leave you with this quote from Show Baraka's song, My Hood USA. If the city wasn't consumed by unexplained flames, it would eventually change due to imminent domain. How can you own a home if you can't get a loan and the powers that be just redline your zone? The government wants your value to drop, so then the private investors come through and buy up your spot. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.